I'm glad that you have come out tonight for the start of our uh, study in uh, this lovely little book of Ruth. So let's jump right in together and we're going to read Ruth chapter 1, just verses 1 to 5 tonight. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Dear God, we just... Thank you again for the joy and the privilege of studying your word. We ask now that you would bless this time that we have together and that you would bless um, this, this book into our lives and its meaning, Lord. We pray that you would grow us and shape us again. Thank you for a new journey. Amen. Amen. Um, in Charles Dickens' novel, The Tale of Two Cities, he begins with the description, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Well, the writer, the author of the book of Ruth, opens with something similar, this sort of um, kind of opening, but the, the book of Ruth would open in just this way, it was the worst of times only. Ruth begins, in the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The period of the, the judges is the time between Joshua and the conquest of uh, the land of Canaan. But the time between Joshua and the coronation of Saul, more than a thousand years before Christ came. And the book of Judges paints this dark picture where we see this repeated cycle, which is more like a, a downward spiral in the book where Israel rebelled. And they sin against God and they forget their Creator. And God sends as judgment oppressors who oppress the people. And then the people repent and they cry out to the Lord. At least they do in the, the first few cycles. And God ultimately redeems them through a rescuer or a judge. And that comes before a time of rest. And in that time of rest they forget the Lord again and rebel again. There's a time of real moral and religious corruption that can be summed up in the final words of the book, Judges 21 verse 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And somewhere out of this context of moral chaos, we have one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. The story of love that is a stark contrast to the ugliness of the day. Christopher Ashe in his commentary says, The book of Ruth is an oasis of life in a death-filled society, a pool of light in a dark world. And we know that it is far more than just a love story. 
The book of Ruth as well is a reminder to us about the providence of God. The providence of God. The book of Judges, you see, is, is painted on a broad canvas. It's about the grand political affairs of this nation. And there are individual heroes, but they are caught up in big things and the great political turmoil around them. Ruth, on the other hand, narrows in on one little family, small and seemingly insignificant. One little story in the middle of the mess. And the author shows us this, that the, the God whose hand steers those great national events is also intimately involved in the little stories of his people. And while this book does reflect the times, times of hard struggle and great tragedy for this little family, it is also a message of hope and a, the sovereign care of a wise and good God. And it is the reminder that we need as well in, in dark times. There are different themes in the book of Ruth, and we're not going to go through all those themes tonight. They will become apparent as we go through the first chapter. All I want to do tonight is do what I believe the author is doing. I want, I want us to see what the author is doing in this first section. The author sets the stage and wants to leave this question hanging in the air. Does God really hold our lives in His hands? Is God really in control of all things, even the details of my life? So let's meet this little family and their big dilemma here in verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country, he says again, of Moab and remained there. Now, trouble can come to us, we know, from all sides. It comes sometimes through the foolish decisions that we make. Sometimes trouble comes through the right decisions that we make and nevertheless lead to trouble or trial. Sometimes it comes through things that are just totally thrust upon us. In this little story, there may well be a mix of all of the above. A little family is introduced immediately as having this or facing this dilemma. Not only do they live in the time of the judges, this, this time of dark days and moral chaos, but there is famine in the land. And the, the author introduces it with a note of irony. They're from Bethlehem, which means literally house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. It is a trouble that they are thrust into, that is out of their control. And so on the one, on the one hand, this family, we see them caught up in affairs that are bigger than them. And so what they do is they decide to move. They leave their family, they leave their kin, they leave even the promised land of Israel, and they go to a second country, another country, the country of Moab. Now the author doesn't explicitly give any comment on the morality of this decision, of this choice. However, these two countries you see in this first section are very important. They're mentioned over and over again. 
the land of Israel, Bethlehem and Moab are definitely the two poles of this first section. Everything hinges on the choice between these two places. They're mentioned so frequently we can be in no doubt in the author's mind about their significance. Bethlehem is in the land of promise. It was the land given to them by God. And there may be here a hint of reprimand intended by the author in the meaning of Elimelech's name. Names we know in the book of Ruth are quite important. They are the bookends of, of the book. The, the book begins with a flurry of names and it ends with a flurry of names. To have a name in this culture is to have life and significance. And what we're going to see by the end of chapter 1 is that all of these individuals, except for one, seem to have lost their names. Elimelech and his sons die and there's this great problem introduced. There's no way for them to pass on the family name. It's a big theme in the book. Naomi alone is left. She's left alive, but she denies the validity at the end of chapter 1 of her name, which literally means my pleasant one. Now, Elimelech's name means, my God is king. And so the question is asked, should the one whose name is, my God is king, should he have remained, perhaps, in the land? Should he have trusted in the Lord? He lived in a, a time in Israel where they had no king, and as we saw, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But this question is hanging in the air. Did Elimelech fail to trust? in the good hand of his God to provide for his needs? Was he perhaps like Sarah and Abram uh, after God took long in the fulfillment of that promise? It says that they went ahead of God. And Sarah, we know, offered Hagar, her maidservant, to Abraham in order to rush that promise along. Interestingly, we could ask the same thing here of Naomi. Why, after Elimelech dies, didn't she return to the land of Israel? It says, that they, it says that they stayed there for 10 years in verse 3. And there are a lot of connections between the book of Ruth and the book of Genesis. That, that period of 10 years is exactly how long in Genesis 16 it says, Sarah waited in the land of Canaan before she grew impatient with the Lord. We also, we ought to believe in the providence of God. We ought to believe that He is the one who sustains all things, and not only that he sustains all things, he's directing all things, and he directs all things for his glory and the good of his children. Don't we so often in our lives reveal through things like worry and anxiety that we have a hard time believing in the goodness of God in our situations? We struggle to trust in God's providence over our lives. Well, if the, the choice to move wasn't really a problem, the readers certainly would have raised eyebrows at the chosen location, their destination. There's not one single positive connotation in all of Scripture connected to the land of Moab. Go read through the Old Testament. Their ancestry is traced back to Lot's drunken, incestuous relationship with his daughters in Genesis 19. They are the enemies of Israel. Remember when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness on the way to, to the land of Canaan, they asked to travel through Moab, and Moab refuses them passage. 
And not only that, but King Balak at that time tried to hire Balaam. Do you remember the story in the book of Numbers? Tried to hire Balaam to curse them. Now Balaam is called a, a false prophet in the New Testament. Not because he, he said anything that was false, but because of his false intentions. He wants to be hired. He wants to curse the Israelites. But he says to Balak, I can only speak that which God gives me. We see in the book of Numbers, three times he tries to curse them, but only is able to bless them because God blesses Israel. But then Balaam is crafty. And we see him later on advise the uh, King Balak. He says to him, send in your daughters. Send in your daughters among them. And we see that Israel are seduced by the daughters of Moab into sexual immorality and idolatrous worship. And so to be a daughter of Moab does not have positive connotation for an Israelite. Deuteronomy 23 says that no Moabite was allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, for what they did. They were known as well for the worship of Chemosh, and that involved child sacrifice. This is not equivalent to, there was no food in town A, so we moved to town B to find food. They couldn't have moved to a place considered more ungodly and opposed to the ways of Yahweh. And they didn't just go for a time, did they? It says that they remained there in the land. They put down roots. Their sons married the women of the land. It's like if, if you move from South Africa to New Zealand, right? And then I see on your Facebook page that your child is wearing all black t-shirt, black t-shirt. Uh, that's just a joke, please. <laughs> I don't know if we're recording this or not. This is going on the internet. We often face crossroads in life where trusting in God and being obedient to Him seems to cut across uh, what we believe will be a path that offers the, the most comfort and security or the best prospects that we have for happiness and for security and success doesn't seem to line up with the choice to obey God. Ian Duguid says in his commentary, the book of Ruth addresses us as people who are just like Elimelech and Naomi. Like them, we often find that the grass seems greener in the fields on the Moabite side of the fence. The temptation to abandon the bread of heaven for this world's provisions is very strong especially during times when the bread of heaven seems scarce. As we saw this morning, obedience to God sometimes will be difficult and come with great cost, will seem risky and threaten our happiness. The promises that the way of obedience is always the way of life for the Christian. Well, Moab, the place that promised life, has delivered only death. And tragedy after tragedy is piled up in Naomi's life. In verse 3, her husband dies. But we're told at least she has her sons, Mahlon and Kilion. But then in, in verse 5, it's stated almost in this stark, terse abruptness. No mention of how or where, just the, the reader plunged into this tragedy, into the horror of this moment in verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
You notice at this point all the names are gone. Even Naomi here has just called the woman, not Naomi. This is tragic enough, this situation to our, our own ears. To lose your husband and to lose your sons forever gone. To the Israelite reader, however, this tragedy would have been compounded. She's not just bereft, she's bereft in a foreign land. Her family is not around, her kin is not around. And it was not a day when a woman, especially an older woman, had any hope of making it on her own, especially away from family. And there could be no greater tragedy in Israel than for a family to simply cease to exist, for the name to disappear. It becomes a theme in this book. Within the theme of redemption, we see how important their name was. And so the reader at this point in the book of Ruth is left thinking, this is a, a hopeless situation. What possible hope could come from this situation? What could God possibly do that would turn this around? And so the scene has been set. And the question is left hanging in the air. It's a question that relates to our own lives. a question we ask all the time. Does God really hold my life in his hands. And can he really be trusted? Have you ever been tormented by this question? And I'm speaking in this question to those who are born again, children of God, who ought to be resting in him and in his trustworthiness. But have you ever been haunted by this, this thought, this question? What if my own foolishness or my own ignorance, or if I make a wrong choice somewhere, where to live, or what career to take, what if my lack of wisdom or ability, or even my own sinfulness, what if something like that makes shipwreck of my life and brings me to ruin? Have you ever wondered or ever felt that in the dark parts of your heart? Or maybe there's been in your life just like it was for Naomi, a piling up of tragedy. And you go through things and you just feel like you're being knocked again and again and again and it feels unfair and it's caused that straining in your heart. Is it really true that God holds my life in His hands? Is it really true that He wants my good? Perhaps the, the author's silence on the morality of their decision. The author doesn't say if it was right or wrong. Maybe that is telling, because at the end of the day, whether through their actions or whether through events that were just thrust upon them, or a combination of the two, the question is the same, can I still trust Him? And the promise is the same, the same to us. The answer in the book of Ruth is that God's grace is always the last word in the lives of God's children. His grace will always have the last word. His providence is not bound to our wisdom. It's not cancelled by our foolishness. It's not subject to the changing winds of fate. God will sovereignly intervene for the good of Naomi, for the good of Ruth, for the extension of the family line. And ultimately, and this is probably the very purpose of the book, that from the impossibility of this situation, there will come a child. 
not just any child, the father of the father of a king. I'm spoiling here the, the great surprise at the end of the book. The book of Judges ends with this note of pessimism, doesn't it? 21 verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so Ruth is here between Judges and 1 Samuel to show God's hand in the middle of this mess. No king, no king, no king. To David, the king after God's own heart. So this book, what we're going to see is that it foreshadows the day uh, and our day too, when all the darkness and the moral chaos of every single age will end and there will be forever the King after God's own heart, Jesus the Messiah. The story of this little family is entwined with the great story of the whole Bible and entwined with the very glory of God. And so the point in Ruth is not just that God's grace has the last word in our lives. It is the defining element of our lives. It is the controlling factor. Do you believe that today, even if you can't see it? And so what do we do in the waiting? What do you do today when that terrifying question rears its ugly head? Can I really trust that he has my life in his hands? We remember. We remember, as I said a few weeks ago, what we remember in the dark, what we learned in the light. Psalm 103, verse 2 to 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's preaching to his soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We heed the words of William Cooper. He had plenty of cause to, to wonder about the goodness of God and God's care in his life, caused both from the choices that he made and from tragedy that was thrust upon him. William Cooper writes in the hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So we remember and we trust. When circumstances feel unjust and our questions go unanswered, the book of Ruth reminds our hearts to, to trust and to leave those questions sometimes to the mystery of God, confident that in the brighter days, he has shown himself to us to be trustworthy. It's so sweet, isn't it, to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that even now you are holding all things together. That things go according to your plan and your time. And every single one of us can trust you because of it. We know that you are good in all things, in all our, our pain, and all the things that keep us up at night or wake us up early in the morning, and everything that you are good. And so we are grateful. We ask, Lord, again, as we go through this book, that you would instill this truth in our hearts, that we can trust in you. Amen. Amen.